or we all have freak flags. Mine is going to fly a little bit higher today. Um, just to let you know a little bit here. Um, what I find so fascinating about this book is that sometimes, at least in my perspective, I think that this book can sometimes be considered flyover country. Right? You know, you know what I mean by flyover country. Some of you have lived in flyover country. Nebraska, Kansas, right? Uh, go Huskers, go Blue Jays, right? Um, yeah, flyover country, you know, uh, places like North and South Dakota, some of those that middle, which we ought to really call the Midwest, right? Because that really is middle country, right? Where I grew up, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, that's not really Midwest, that's, that's North, Northern whatever you want to call it. Um, just kind of lost place. But nonetheless, you know, because we call it flyover country because there's really not much, at least from our perception, to see. You know, there's really, so why, why even go there? Just, it's really good, you know, you just fly over it, I can see it, great, I've done that, great, let's move on, kind of thing. I think sometimes there are certain books, I think, that we approach in scripture that oftentimes we might consider to be flyover country. We, we sometimes don't spend a lot of time in those areas, those books, for a variety of reasons. Perhaps here may be one reason why we don't spend a lot of time in Philemon or why many, and I understand it, I'm not saying that it's wrong or, or right or anything else, just understanding it. Then when it comes to the book of Philemon, you should be able to, or me rather, or anyone else who's preaching from it, should really be able to accomplish this book in one sitting. One service, that's it. Let's move on. Um, however, what I love about the Scriptures, what I love about this book, among many things, but what I love about the Bible is that it is because of the fact it is authored by Jesus Christ, the Word of God, right? John 1, 1, right? And because it is because of that, not in and of itself is the Bible anything special. It would just be merely words on a page if it were not authored and, 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 and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But because it is, it is dynamic. It is alive. It gives us life. And because of that, what is unique and special about this Bible, or any Bible for that matter that you may pick up, is that you could read passages over and over again, and all of a sudden, out of reading passages, you can cover things over and over again. You can read the book of John. You can go over very familiar passages. And the beauty of it is, if you are truly possibly listening and open to the movement of the Spirit, you can look at this passage and go, well, I never saw that before. Isn't that the beauty of the Scriptures? I love the fact that Jesus will not be put in a box. Certainly not any box that I would make. But that doesn't stop us from trying, right? In seminary or cemetery, you can uh, choose it if you want, um, where your spirituality goes to die was how usually the saying goes, right? Um, that wasn't my case. I loved going to seminary. In fact, spiritually, I came alive in seminary. But nonetheless, but I went to a very good seminary, so that's why. Um, you know, <laughs> anyways, when I went to Biola University, we used to talk about um, Fuller. You know, Fuller is a great seminary, but you know, there's even robberies among seminaries. And we used to say about, apparently at Biola, what they would say is, well, I'm glad you're going to Fuller. They need to hear Jesus as well. <laughs> you know, um, so... Even among seminaries, there's a little bit of ribbing and a little bit of competition. All friendly, of course. We love everyone. Um, anyways, what, I, what is so fascinating, when I was in seminary, 
is that you study theology in a very systematic way. In fact, it's called systematic theology. And the whole point of systematic theology is for us to get an understanding of God. And the way we do that is we've developed a system, hence the reason why it's called systematic. We've developed a very clear system by which one can understand who God is. And we used to, you know, theology books, systematic theology books, at least the one I study, was about yay big, you know, over, you know, 12, 1400 pages long. And it was a systematic way of understanding who God is. Now, stop right there. That's a little messed up. Let me just explain a little bit why, just even on a human level. If I were to say, hey, if you want to understand a woman, there is a system for understanding that. And you can find it in this book. And by the way, I doubt it would be 1,400 pages, more like 20,000. Right? No, 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 I'm not trying to, you know, men don't even. Um, for men, it may be 10 pages uh, kind of thing. I don't know. All I'm saying is you and I, we cannot understand. You cannot understand your spouse, either wife or husband, in a systematic way. Because we're dynamic. We're changing. You know, what we liked years ago is something we not, may not like now. I remember when I was early on, we were married. Uh, I loved Golden Graham cereal. I love Golden Graham's. And so I had this person in our small group. She would give us coupons for Golden Graham cereal. And eventually one day I'm just like, I don't want Golden Graham's anymore. I thought you liked it. Yeah, I don't like them anymore. We change. We change. We, are, we do not stay static. No matter how much we want to believe we do, we change. You are different now than you were a year and a half ago. Some of you saying, praise God, huh? <laughs> Amen. God is, God is doing a work in your life. And, and that's a good thing. Change is not bad. In fact, dare I say this, it may be, not always, it may be an indication of God working in your life. God loves us for who we are, but thank, thanks be to Him, He doesn't leave us that way. He doesn't leave us that way. Because I don't know about you, but I need a lot of work in my life. I am not perfect. I'm bursting bubbles right now. No, no, huh? I've been here too long. <laughs> you guys are ornery today. Uh, quirky. You're letting your freak flags fly. Amen. Hoist them up. Um, you know, I, here's the thing, is that we do not stay the same. We are dynamic. We are changing. Now, God never changes, but He is dynamic. We can never know all of who God is. Think about that. You can never know all of who God is in a systematic theology book, study, or otherwise. The same way we can look and read the Bible from Genesis to maps, and we can never fully understand who God is. He has, by His grace, given us an understanding of how much, how much we can handle of who He is. Because we couldn't handle it all. I love that story where Moses is with God. And by the way, as Scripture has shared, perhaps no other human being had the kind of relationship with God than Moses did. He talked with him, walked with him, almost as though the Garden of Eden, as best as we can have understood it, you can oftentimes see in the kind of relational dynamic that Moses and God had. And yet, when Moses finally said, you know what, God, I haven't seen you yet. 
I haven't seen you face to face. And God says, guess what, Moses? You can't see my face. If you see me for all of who I am, you'll die. You could not handle it. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll, I'll let you just see my back. And that's enough. Do you understand that we serve a God whom if we saw fully who He is, we probably would not be able to live through it. I mean, it, the, the, the little presence that God gave to the Israelites at Mount Sinai was like a rock concert gone bad. I mean, it was, you know, volcanoes erupting and, and loud, thunderous noises and lightning and blows of trumpets and all that kind of stuff. They were so freaked out, they simply said to Moses, you go to God and you tell him and you tell us what he said to you and that'll be enough. They missed not, I mean, they just didn't want that personal face-to-face relationship with him because it just scared them. Praise God for Jesus Christ, as we're going to see today, that makes it so possible for us to sit in this place and to not really think much about the fact that we are in his presence right now and we're alive. And we're alive. Do you understand what a beautiful gift that is? That we are alive today in His presence, in the very throne room, and we are alive. That Hebrews tells us, come boldly. Now let me just say that boldly word doesn't necessarily mean come arrogantly. That's not the same thing. Come boldly. By the way, come expectantly. Come without any fear of being killed because of what Jesus Christ has made possible, which was not possible before His coming. That we can be in His presence I get goosebumps. I've got them right now. And it's not because the air is on. I get goosebumps thinking about that. We are in God's presence and we are still alive. And not only that, we are in God's presence and we have no fear right now. How many of us are fearing that we're going to be struck dead for whatever we did this week that only Jesus knows about and no one else? Oh no, we know that He sits on a mercy seat, not on the judgment seat. That's the beautiful thing of the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, right? Is that He sits, that's a mercy seat. That's not a judgment seat. In other words, He wants to extend that mercy. And we're going to see today in the book of Philemon how this all happens. Because as we are going through this book, what is so awesome and so beautiful about this book is it's all about wanting to help repair relationships that have been fractured. Relationships that have been broken. And I hope that as we are going through this series, if you haven't already seen it now, I hope you'll see it starting today and moving forward, is that what can be done on a relational level between us as human beings is also what happens at a relational level between us and God Himself. That what Philemon here shares and what Paul writes here is so beautiful in the way he does it is that all of a sudden now what we see here is not only a blueprint a way for us to be able to have relationships healed between each other. But more than that, our relationship healed between us and God. And this is why, if you want to understand why Paul writes what he writes in Philemon, always look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus to interpret Paul. Never look to Paul to interpret Jesus. We sometimes do that. Well, what did Jesus mean? Well, go to Paul. Paul defines what Jesus meant. No, 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 no. That's bad hermeneutics. That's a nice cemetery term. Seminary term. Basically, hermeneutics is the application of Scripture. Exegesis is trying to figure out what the original meaning was. Right? So you can't have exa without Herman. Okay? You've got to have Herman. 
Bad hermeneutics, bad way to interpret the scripture is going to Paul to interpret Jesus. No, no, go to Jesus to interpret Paul. And we're going to see that today. Are you excited? Because yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited about this. I really, truly am. This is, as I shared two weeks ago, the call of my life. And I may not be very good at it, but I'm going to try my darndest at it, is to bring about where I can reconciliation. And by the way, it is hard, hard work. Incredibly hard. And yet, as we learned, there are some things we came to this book a few weeks ago, and as Pastor Eric shared last week as well, uh, first of all, no relationship is perfect. Do you remember me sharing that? No relationship is perfect. That's the reality we live in. Every relationship we have, every relationship we know, maybe that we may not be involved in, maybe someone else that we know is involved in, may not be a perfect relationship. We know every relationship is not perfect. I shouldn't be sharing anything that you don't already realize. Number two, new beginnings, however, are possible. Where there are fractions, where there are breakdowns, where there is a separation in relationships, reconciliation is possible. It is. Reconciliation is possible. And here's the third one. As a follower of Jesus, your ministry is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 that is our ministry. Now, two more things I want to add on that. Pastor Eric shared last week. Your attitude can make or break a new beginning or reconciliation. And today, what we're going to see is that all new beginnings or reconciliation begins with a choice. All new beginnings or reconciliation starts with a choice. And today we're going to see that although the Apostle Paul could have, from a positional standpoint, choosing either from a positional standpoint, authority that is, or from a relational standpoint, to help bring about reconciliation between Philemon and this other person by the name of Onesimus, Paul chooses not to use his authority, but rather his relationship with Philemon. And we're going to see why that is so important. And not only that, we're going to see why, in the bigger scope of things, that's exactly what Jesus does as well. It's a beautiful blueprint. Now, to help us guide us through this passage today, there's a couple of things I want to share, two points that I want to share. Now, they're quirky. I told you you're going to see a little bit of quirkiness in me today. You're going to see it here as well, in the points that I share with you. That's how it's going to come out. So hang with me a little bit, okay? They're kind of, they're quirky. I'm just going to say that. So here is point number one as we, as we go into today's passage here. And it starts with this. New beginnings that are forced or coerced often lead to a divorce. <laughs> Let me say that again. New beginnings or reconciliation processes that are forced or coerced often lead to a divorce. Now here's what I mean by this. Take a look at beginning with verse 8 in Philemon and Paul writes the following. Therefore, Therefore, remember, whenever we come to that word, therefore, what do we ask? What is it there for? The previous verse says this, For I have heard a great joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. In other words, what Paul is writing to Philemon, he says, Guess what, Philemon? I have heard from others in the church that meets at your house, the church that you help to lead, that you are a blessing to them. 
because of your love for them. You have great love for the people uh, that you are a part of, that meet in your house, that fellowship with each other, that you are a part of. You have great love for them and they have benefited greatly. So he says this in verse 8, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, we're going to find out he doesn't. Paul, interesting here, brings up this idea that even though I have enough confidence in Christ, in other words, speaking from a position of authority, remember, Paul just wasn't a writer of letters. Remember, he was an apostle, a leader, not only in this church in Colossae, but rather the church in general, the big C church. He was one of the big guys, and he was affirmed as that. In fact, I've shared this before, I'll share this again in the book of Acts. After Judas has committed suicide and the disciples are in the upper room, it's very interesting. Jesus tells them to do one thing. What does he tell them to do? He says, wait, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Well, how'd they do on that? Peter says, you know what? Eh, we're short a guy. We got to find a 12th apostle. We can't have 11. This is just, this just won't do. We got to have 12. He doesn't wait. So they go ahead and they pray and they present two men to be considered as the 12th apostle. And they pray about it, and then what do they do after they pray about it? They draw straws, or cast lots, or throw the dice. And one of the guys gets the short end of the straw, or the long end of the straw, whatever you want to consider it. Does anybody know what that guy's name was? Matthias, right? Of course you do, right? Yes. All the, yeah, all those who've been to cemetery know it, right? Matthias! What do we know about him? Very little. Not to say that he was not a bad guy. He probably was a good guy. But guess what? I bet if they would have waited, guess who might have been the 12th guy? Paul. Now, it didn't hamper his ministry. It's just my own speculation. But nonetheless, Paul was an enormous leader in the church even at this point. He could have used his authority that way. Not only that, Paul also planted the church in Colossae. He knew those people. He'd been with those people. He was known by those people. He was a leader among those people. He was the leader among those people. He could have, do that. He could have done that. In fact, this word in verse 8 that he says, in, that I could have ordered you, order, that's a very unique word that Paul uses here. Basically means to command in terms of kind of a, a position of authority, to make someone do something, to command them to do it. Paul only uses that word once in all of his letters and he only uses it here. Period. He could have commanded or forced them or said, guess what? Because of my authority, I am going to do that. And yet, he resists it. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. If you've ever been a part or ever seen two people that you dearly love who are separated and have a conflict going on, and the relationship has been fractured because of it, and you are there, and you are maybe some sort of authority person in that. Maybe you're an employer of them. Maybe you are a parent of them. Maybe you are a friend to them. Some sort of positional, maybe even more than that, authority to them. And you've ever thought in your mind, well, I am going to make them get along. How successful has that turned out to be? It just goes this way. You cannot force your will on anyone else. You cannot force your will on anyone else. 
And by the way, let me just share a bit of confession about this. The church has been horrible at this, I believe. And one of the biggest ways is the dynamic between a husband and a wife, in which the church, and of which I'm a part of, have stood up and have shared that a wife is to submit to her husband, as in, in the context is oftentimes perceived to be and understood to be that it's his will that rules the day. And women, you better get in line and obey. What a horrible thing to say. What a horrible thing for you women to have been told that and believed that because that's what it says in scriptures, Ephesians 5, it's, it's in print, to be interpreted that way. What a horrible thing that women, if it's your job to submit to your man, no matter what, it's his will that rules the day, not yours. I remember telling my grandfather over a situation in our family of someone trying to do that. And I asked my grandfather, hey, grandpa, what if you ever said that to, you, to grandma, you know, that it's my way or the highway? And he said, I tell you what, I'd sleep with one eye open at night. <laughs> He's a very wise man, or was. <laughs> right? You and I cannot force our will on anyone. Period. I know our hearts may be good and we want to see healing and we want, we want all of this to happen, but we cannot force it. I want my puppy to be potty trained now and stop peeing on my quilt. But I can't force that. He did it again last night. I've washed that quilt three times now. My washer is like, seriously, again? It's even questioning the judgment here. When are you going to learn? I cannot force my will. I can only request it. I got a treat. If you go outside, you get something good. <laughs> right? Listen, I think our hearts are good and we so desperately want to have that healing done, but we can never force it. And you know what I think about the beauty of this is what Paul writes is that I think he's also showing Philemon that, guess what? You can't force Onesimus back in by the way philemon as you know was the owner of onesimus who was a slave so philemon understood positional authority remember in those days slavery was very much a common practice in fact it was so common that in the roman empire 20 to 30 percent of the roman empire population were in slaves were in slavery it was so common that people blended in slaves romans that were free you couldn't tell the difference and in fact, in some point, there was an idea that the Roman, you know, government decided that maybe we ought to mandate that slaves wear different clothing than everyone else because we can't tell them apart from free people. That's how much commonplace it was. They decided against it because if they found out, there was a fear that if slaves found out, oh, you're a slave too, by the way they dress, maybe they would discover how big and large a population they were and they might revolt. So it's better to assimilate them than to ostracize them. And obviously we know that slavery in those days is very different than the slavery that we are accustomed to in our time. Slavery in those days, anyone could be a slave for any reason. Most likely for wars or financial debt, you could become a slave. And by the way, what was different than slavery in those days, during slavery of what we are accustomed to today, is that slavery that we know today often targeted one particular culture or ethnic group, particularly in this country, and it was done not absolutely against their will, 
And there was no hope of them being freed. In Roman times, at least for a slave, there was possibility that you could be freed. If you paid off your debt, you could be free. You could actually be a Roman citizen. You could have those things. You could not have that in the slavery that we are accustomed to in our own country today. Very different. But nonetheless, and, and by the way, there were laws because, by the way, slaves were actually considered very valuable for the most part in Roman society. And there were even laws later on that absolutely dealt with preventing excessive use of force against slaves. There were limits that were placed. Philemon understood authority. He understood that he had a position over Onesimus, and that if he wanted to, he could make Onesimus' life very, very difficult. He could have Onesimus thrown in jail. Even worse, he could have him killed. All of these things. These were up to, uh, up to Philemon. Understood that. And what I love about what Paul does is that for love's sake, and by the way, that word love, that's the word there. That agape love. That love that is unique that the love that Jesus shows to us, that sacrificial love, that's what Paul writes there. That love that Philemon you have for the church, for love's sake, I want you to show towards Anesimus. Do you see the beauty of what's going on here? You have the position, don't use the position. Just like I have the position, I'm not going to use the position. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. If you want to help bring about reconciliation, forcing or coercion doesn't work. You cannot make people make up. It just isn't going to work, period. So stop trying, if you are trying. Stop trying. It's like, you know, you have that one family member who's always trying to set you up on dates, trying to force you, you need a husband or you need a, you need a wife. Let's get that fixed right now. And forcing you to, and just, how uncomfortable is that? Right? Leave me alone. You cannot force someone to date or get married. It's been tried. It hasn't always worked out well. The same way, you and I cannot force our will on anyone to come into a relationship that has been fractured. Let me just say another application before I move on to the second point. That bodes not only truth amongst each other, but also among our relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot, and I cannot, force anyone to follow Jesus Christ. Period. It doesn't stop us from trying, doesn't it? We use all sorts of techniques. In fact, Charles Finney, a wonderful evangelist, he got it down to a science about how to have a revival. You do these certain things in this certain way, and all of a sudden you do these emotions, and you build it up this way. This was back in the 19th century, by the way. This is not something new. He had it down to a science about how to have these revivals, that he got it down to a system. We cannot and should never manipulate or force people into following Jesus. I'm always cringe when parents say to me that one of their goals for their kids is that they will be followers of Jesus Christ. My child is going to follow Jesus Christ. Good luck. That's the wrong phraseology. Perhaps a better one is to say, I hope my child chooses to follow Jesus because I have hopefully created an environment and an example by which they truly know who Jesus is and want to follow him. You and I cannot choose for others the path that they live. Give it up. 
I was reading a story about a guy who raised his children and he cut out all TV. He cut out all social media. He cut out all what we would consider to be really not necessarily good things in their lives. And he was surprised still his kids rebelled. And he couldn't, he just, he couldn't wrap his mind around it. He thought he did everything right. That's the problem. That's the problem. We look at it as right or wrong and we forget to understand that, guess what? Sin is passed down not through devices or TVs or anything else like that. Sin is passed down through us. Really, through the women. I'm just just kidding. I'm just... Oh, Jesus, please forgive me. I have fractured relationships today. Um, It is passed down. It is inherited from generation to generation. You can cut out all of the extracurricular stuff, but what you cannot cut out is the heart. You can't do it. And people, you can do all of those things. You can do everything right. And still, your child can rebel and choose not to follow Jesus. And you're at a loss. I've had people come to me, mainly men, who have viewed their role in the family as that of the leader, the head of the household. Therefore, everyone needs to submit to him. And they wonder why their kids are messed up and their wives don't like them very much. You and I can never force reconciliation, whether it's between each other or between someone in Jesus Christ, ever. Paul knows this, which is why he says, although I could order you, Philemon, I'm not going to do that. I could order you, but I'm not going to do that. And that's why he says the following, and this is really important, the second point. New beginnings that begin with a request often turn out for the best. I'm quirky. I told you. I gave you you fair warning. New beginnings or reconciliation that begin with a request often turn out for the best. Not guaranteed. But it's a great start. Listen to what Paul writes. Yet, for love's sake, agape's sake, I rather what? Appeal. I have a request. I have this, this desire. I want to share with you. I have this appeal. I appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, an old man, and now as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I fathered in my imprisonment. What that means is, Paul did not father Onesimus physically. He fathered him, or he considers Onesimus his spiritual son, and Onesimus considers him his spiritual father. In other words, Paul shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. So therefore, he is my spiritual son and I am his spiritual father. That is what Paul is alluding to here. Okay, That is what that is. And he says this. And by the way, this is what is so necessary about reconciliation. There's some certain things that have to happen. And Paul here is going to demonstrate that. One of the things that has to happen for reconciliation is that both parties have to be willing to be reconciled. Secondly, truth has to be spoken, has to be shared. Thirdly, and this is in no particular order, I'm listing it, is that you and I, we have to own our part in why the relationship was fractured. We have to own our part. And that means we have to do some soul searching. 
That means we have to ask ourselves some tough questions. Paul here is going to share some truth about Onesimus that Philemon knows, but nonetheless, Paul shares it. All right? He says, guess what? The truth is Onesimus is now a Christian. I brought him by the grace of God, by sharing the gospel. He is now a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says this, I fathered in my imprisonment, verse 11, who previously was useless to you. By the way, Onesius' name means useful. So Paul is playing words here. He is a genius at this. He wasn't really good public speaker, by the way. Remember when Paul spoke in the book of Acts, we're told that he was speaking on and on and on. The one time that we understand his public speaking, a guy fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. <laughs> you know, grateful we don't have any windows here and we're not up in the upper level anywhere okay that was paul's one time that we heard him speak he was a much better writer than he was a public speaker okay clearly he didn't have the chops apparently like peter did where he could speak for eight minutes and lead thousands of people three thousand people by the way to jesus christ paul didn't have that kind of influence he had just an unbelievable ability to write in a very powerful way. And this is one of these examples. Is that now Onesimus, who Philemon knows was useless. This guy ran off. This guy escaped. Whatever it was. And Philemon may have been a wonderful slave owner. He might have been. We don't know. He, you know, By the way, sometimes slaves were treated as, as, as members of their own household at times in Roman society. Maybe this was... Like, I, we don't know. Who knows? But nonetheless, he was useless to you. And now Paul writes in verse 12, and he was both, but now in verse 11, he is useful both to you and to me. He's living up to his name. He's a follower of Jesus. He is now useful. Verse 12, and this is where it gets really personal. And I have sent them back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. If reconciliation is going to be possible, you can't run from it. You can't run from the problems. You can't run from what you did. You cannot run from those things. You have to turn and face them. And the beauty of what Paul does here is he says, I could imagine how this conversation went down. Onesimus comes to know Jesus. It's a wonderful day. Hey, congratulations. Welcome, brother. Welcome, son. You know, you are now a part of the Christian household. Now, guess what? You need to go back to Philemon. Say what? You need to go back to Philemon and make this right. Excuse me? No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not stuttering here. I'm not speaking some other foreign language. You need to go back to Philemon and make this right. How many of you have ever been, in, don't answer, just keep it to yourself, ever been told you need to go make something right with someone? What you did was not right. What you did was wrong. And you need to go make it right. How many of you look forward to that? How many of you wanted to go back and do that? You could almost imagine Onesimus saying, I got that thing. <laughs> you know what, that whole... Anyone who tells you that following Jesus, your life will just get easily, will just become easy and wonderful and it'll be lollipops and rainbows and unicorns. By, by the way, why is it hard to believe in unicorns but easier to believe in a giraffe? <laughs> FYI, quirky. Okay? But here's the thing. Anybody who tells you that, chances are they're not telling you the whole truth. Sometimes following Jesus, your life becomes harder because Jesus may now be calling you back 
to go and address those things in your life that you have long avoided. Onesimus thought he could run from his problems all the way to Rome and be free of it. And he meets up with Paul. Paul brings him to Jesus. And now Paul tells him, go back and make right what you have done. And he helps lay the groundwork with Philemon by saying, guess what? I am sending him back to you. Do the right thing. I am asking you, not commanding you. I am pleading with you. In verse 13, Paul writes, whom I wanted to keep with me. He wanted Onesimus to stay with him, but he knew so that in your behalf he might be my service in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. Do you see the relational dynamic here that Paul is using? He's honoring Philemon. He is not commanding Philemon. He is honoring the friendship they have, the relationship they have, and he is coming at it not from a position of authority, but that of a servant. And he says, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps it was for this reason that he was separated for you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than that. More than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That is a beautiful Beautiful thing. You know what is so interesting? Is that when Paul makes that appeal, that word appeal, is from the word paraclete. It's the same word that we use to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that of a paraclete, or that of a counselor, a guide, someone who comes alongside, not someone who forces his way in, but rather there as a helper, not as a hindrance. That's the word that Paul uses. And what I think is so beautiful about that is that it shows how Paul is approaching Philemon. But more than that, it also shows how Jesus Christ approaches each and every one of us. You know, Jesus has it in his will to command us to follow him, doesn't he? He created us. He knows us. And he is our Lord, whether we recognize it or not. And he can come to us and say, Dan, I command you to follow me. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. I love how one author, William P. Young, says this. Relationships are never about power. Let me say that again. Relationships are never about power. And one way to avoid the will to hold power over another is to choose to limit oneself to serve. You know, that's what Jesus did. He could have come in any way to this earth because He created it, because He created us. It's His. We just merely put our paws and our fingerprints all over what He did. That's what we did. It's His world. We are His people. He could have come and commanded us. He could have came on a white horse with all the glory that He has and shown Himself for who He really is and said to each and every one of us, you will now bow and you will now confess that I am Lord and Savior. Instead, this is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7. through seven. This is what Jesus did. And this is what he encourages us to do. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a bond servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was born a baby, not a king. 
fully grown and in all of his glory and power. That says volumes about his approach to us to heal a fractured relationship that all of us have with him. He could have came in over a position of authority and commanded it, but instead he comes as a servant. If we're willing to do the same thing, perhaps we can help mend relationships that have been broken. This is what Paul does. That's the beauty. And even greater than that, this is what Jesus